Welcome to the WNCT Podcast Network. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. People have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Thank you for tuning into this episode of What the Politics. I'm Victoria, and Emily is here with me right across the table. And we are going to talk about the first 100 days of Biden's presidency. Now, we know this is actually Biden's 105th day, but we record on Tuesday. So we're recording this topic on his 105th day. We're going to explore several policies, including um, some of the policies related to the pandemic, the border crisis, and also what's going on with um, any of the legislative policies related to the climate. So I'm going to go ahead and have our guest introduce himself. Hi, I'm Professor Peter Francia. I'm the director of ECU Center for Survey Research, and I'm a professor of political science. And this is, I believe, your second time on our podcast. You're, you're a reoccurring guest. <laughs> yeah, I think it's second or third. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it might actually might be, right. might be yeah, third, yeah. Third. Oh, wow. Nice. Okay, so um, <laughs> we're going to go right into our topic, which is Biden's first 100 days. Now, it's past, you know, the first 100 days, but we're, we're going to take a look at his first 100 days. Is there a reason behind the number 100? Yeah, Franklin Roosevelt, when he was president, uh, worked through the passage of a number of laws related to the quote-unquote New Deal, right? So FDR's New Deal programs, which in many respects transformed the role of the federal government and the role of the presidency, uh, many uh, political scientists would say, in, in fact, that the modern presidency uh, begins with with Franklin Roosevelt. Those first 100 days, uh, FDR had 76 laws passed, and it's sort of looked at as the the marker for productivity for any president since FDR. Mm. So can we talk about, I mean, obviously there's been a lot of executive orders he's put out, you know, the relief bills, vaccinations, um, canceling the Keystone Pipeline, um, all these types of legislations that are, you know, being in, in national headlines from the first 100 days. But is there anything that you think is, any policies or legislation that Biden's trying to push that isn't necessarily being talked about in national headlines as much, but that you find to be of significance right now? Well, I think one aspect of the presidency that has changed is that the way that Biden communicates certainly is a bit different from from Donald Trump. Trump was, of course, very well known for uh, communicating directly to the public through Twitter he was averaging about 18 tweets a day. Uh, Biden uh, uses Twitter a lot less. The numbers out for Biden are about six tweets a day. So Trump was tweeting about three times the number of tweets as Biden. So that's certainly one thing that I haven't heard a whole lot mentioned in the news, but it certainly suggests that there's been some change in how the two previous, how the two presidents, if you compare them, how they communicate a bit differently. Mm -hmm. And so kind of going into one hot topic that has taken over everyone's lives within the past year, which is the pandemic. So the, the vaccination efforts, it, it, the Biden administration reached its 100 million shot goal in mid-March, which is 40 days ahead of schedule. 
But does that credit all go to Biden or does some of it lay with Trump as well? Well, Republicans would certainly say that the uh, that the ball got rolling with Donald Trump and that the Trump administration had um, got that process started and that Biden inherited uh, a good situation. Uh, I think Biden supporters would say that uh, that that Biden improved the efficiency of the covid vaccine shot deliveries to people. Uh, so, you know, certainly you're going to go you're going to see both sides sort of going back and forth on on who deserves the credit for that. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of the biggest um, concerns that the American public has is is the, the budget. So there's uh, I believe President Biden has put in one point nine trillion dollars. He plans to spend another four point one trillion at this point. Are we just printing money? Uh, I understand that some of that money had to go towards covid relief efforts. But in reality, a lot of that money went to infrastructure and 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 some people say that not all of that money is being put to the to the best interest of the american people what do you have to say on that well the numbers are really astronomical when you think about the the amount of spending that's um i mean you mentioned the 1.9 trillion dollar corona release excuse me corona virus relief package mm-hmm. um known as the american rescue plan mm-hmm. So that that 1.9 trillion dollars is is a large number when you think about it in comparison to when Barack Obama first took office when the the country was in the midst of the great recession and uh, you know we were hemorrhaging jobs uh, at the very start of the Obama presidency the amount of stimulus uh, was was a fraction of what Joe Biden recently was able to get Congress to pass. So, you know, the um, the stimulus under Obama um, was, you know, in the neighborhood of eight hundred billion dollars, and now we're talking one point nine trillion. So it's it's an enormous number, and I, there's really two ways of looking at it. You can look at that and label it um, an accomplishment for Biden if you believe that the economy needs that infusion of money. Um, to get into the hands of people and for and for various other projects that 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 some might say are necessary. On the other hand, uh, you could certainly look at that number and say, well, wait a second. At at some point, um, you know, we're talking about money that requires running tremendous annual deficits that, in the long run, adds up to a really significant amount of debt for the country to carry. And of course, if you think long term, um, there is there's interest that has to be paid on that debt. And uh, as that um, as debt increases and the interest payments on that debt increase, an increasing portion of your budget every year has to go to just paying off debt. Mm-hmm. And there are plenty of economists who will tell you that if you do that long enough, you can have some real problems long term. And one example of that would be uh, what the situation that happened in Greece many years ago. Um, I guess it's it may, it guess depends on your perspective. I shouldn't say many. It may seem like a short time to some, but it, you know it was um, at least in recent memory um, where um, you know you can run into a situation where um, a country's debt can really uh, you know have very serious consequences for the national economy. So if you're on the side that um, believes that deficit spending is needed 
um, in a time of um, economic crisis, and certainly because of the coronavirus, we've been put in that situation, then you would look at the what Biden did and say, well, good, he did a good thing there. The economy needed it. But if you're on the, if you're, you know, a deficit hawk, and you believe that deficits matter, then you know I would be looking at that number probably with some trepidation and and certainly of the belief that long term, if the country continues to run um, large deficits and goes deeply into debt, that it could be could have long term problems for the country. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Presidents reversing other former president's efforts and policies. How often does that happen? And can pulling in and out of these deals, you know, every four years or so, can that get dangerous, especially when it comes to some of these foreign policies and treaties? Yeah, the country is uh, more polarized politically than ever. And I'm not just talking about uh, the general public. The, The Congress has been deeply polarized for the better part of the last two decades. And political scientists who study uh, polarization in Congress have noted that we're, uh, the Congress is at its highest point of polarization um, since the time of the Civil War. So uh, when parties are deeply divided like that, it's, it's very common that you'll see when a new party takes over the White House that the new president will undo the policies of uh, the predecessor if, uh, if the previous president, of course, belongs to a different political party. So I think Biden undoing what Trump did is not surprising at all. Um, certainly when Trump was undoing what Obama did, it wasn't surprising at all. And when Obama was undoing what Bush did, it wasn't surprising. So this is this is pretty normal stuff, and it's it's only seems to be growing more. Um, you know, the, the winds keep blowing more in that direction uh, because of the uh, intense polarization that exists right now. In any way, can that be out of pure spite for opposing parties? I don't think that it's that's really the motivation. I mm. think that part of it is that there are genuine differences, right? So mm. you you know, the, the new president really believes and thinks differently than the previous one, and that's not just Biden disagreeing with Trump and Trump mm. disagreeing. I think you know we can go all the way back, and these are these are real differences in in uh, in philosophy and in policy positions. Um, so that's part of it. You also have to remember that candidates, when they before they become president, they run for president and they make promises mm-hmm. on the campaign trail. So a lot of times, uh, to uh, certainly to win the, the you know to win the votes of the voters in your political party, uh, it's very common, of course, to campaign against the ideas of the president and the opposite party um, in the other party. So. Presidents now have gone out and um, campaigned against the policies of the other party. Now they get elected. Uh, well, what do we expect them to do? They actually do what they say they're going to do. They keep their promises and they undo those policies. So, uh, you know, Joe Biden certainly made no secret of the fact that he disagreed with Donald Trump on on a whole host of policy issues. He is in the White House right now and he's doing what he said he would do on the campaign mm-hmm. trail. And again, uh, that's not just to uh, sort of single out Joe Biden. Um, Donald Trump made no secret of the fact that he disagreed deeply with Barack Obama on policy and and did much the same when he was president. Mm -hmm. So I don't see that as spite, right? I I Mm -hmm. see that more as there are genuine differences, and then those genuine differences come out during the campaign, and then you (laughs) – 
the candidate that wins office then goes out and keeps their promise that they made during the campaign. Gotcha. So I think it's a pretty normal, natural thing. Mm-hmm. And going back to what, what Biden campaigned on, he he kind of campaigned on this idea of reuniting America, fighting for the soul of America. Do you think Biden is the president to, to really reunite this divide that we've seen increase over the past few years? Well, that's a hard question to answer. I think, again, in an environment of polarization, uh, I think it would be hard for any human being um, to step into office and easily reunite a country. Again, if Americans have policy differences, it's not as simple as, well, let's find compromise and and split the difference and go down the middle. Uh, If it was that easy, it would have already been done. Typically what happens is when politicians try to do that and find middle ground, they can get things done, but it often is not good enough then for um, the ideologues uh, on in both parties. So if, if a Republican moves too far to the middle, the right-wing uh, conservative base is going to be unhappy. And certainly on in, in Biden's case right now, he's dealing with um, the progressive wing, the left of the Democratic Party. And, you know, if he moves too far to the middle with Republicans, he risks alienating that part of the party. And in fact, he's to some extent, even though we mentioned earlier that there was this $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package that a lot of progressives on the left uh, were happy with. We, we haven't mentioned this yet, and I'll bring it up now. Uh, one of the top policy agenda items for the progressive wing of the Democratic Party was an increase in the minimum wage to $15 an hour, mm-hmm. and that failed. And progressives on the left of the Democratic Party have argued that, you know, Biden didn't really fight that hard for it um, and didn't push the party that hard on it. So there's already some discontent on the left of the party over uh, the way Biden handled the the fight over the minimum wage. So, you know, that's when we could talk about, again, previous presidents as well, where they often struggle with their base. But this makes it hard, right, for um, there to be unity. If you move to the middle, then you as I just pointed out, you risk alienating uh, the, the people who are on the far ends of your party, right? Um, but if you don't move to the middle, then it's really hard to find unity. So I think it's it's a really what, – what usually happens is the presidents that can bring – usually when we see the country come together, it's, it's when there is a, a unifying crisis. So in my lifetime, uh, you can think of events – like uh, the 9-11 terrorist attacks, where George Bush's approval ratings went from about 50% and shot up to about 90% uh, in the immediate aftermath of the 9-11 attacks. Those are the types of events that, that can bring the country together and then rally behind the president. But you know, absent an event like that, it's very hard for a president, particularly in today's age with such heightened polarization, um, you know, to bring the country together. And so I don't I don't think it's just something that Joe Biden is going to struggle to do. I think that any person who is president right now would have a hard time doing that. Mm. And there was something that you mentioned in the answer that you just gave, kind of talking about how there's a division within even the parties themselves. And I, one of the policies that I really want to look at is, is uh, the border crisis and some of the policies surrounding the border crisis, how some people... 
Um, so Biden created a task force focused on identifying and reuniting migrant families separated at the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, this was kind of as a result of Trump's controversial zero-tolerance policy. Um, but then there's there's some also criticisms that Biden isn't doing enough with the border because there has been an influx of migrants. But then the migrant facilities themselves are are dangerous. Um, so when it comes to the border crisis, what what is President Biden dealing with right now? Yeah, he's dealing with a very similar dynamic to the one that I just explained, and I think that's a good issue to, to sort of highlight this point that um, on the border, uh, he's certainly dealing with a lot of criticism from Republicans and from conservatives who feel that you know he's not taken the sort of swift and necessary actions uh, that he needs to take in order to secure the border. Uh, you certainly, conservatives are not happy that you know Biden has uh, has decided to. Um, you know, end construction of the border wall, which is one of uh, certainly one of the signature policy items during uh, Donald Trump's presidency. Uh, and if you're a supporter of that policy, certainly Biden's actions uh, are, are ones that you're not going to be happy with. So uh, on the border, he's certainly getting criticism from the right, um, you know, from the from again, from his own party on the left. Uh, I think that some would like him to move, you know, in a more, even more humanitarian direction um, than he's done so far. So I think that issue is a good one to highlight how, you know, it's it's hard to please everyone on that issue. And in fact, it's probably impossible um, to get sort of widespread um, unity on an issue as controversial as the border. Mm-hmm. And and. The responsibility of keeping up the border. So we just mentioned the wall um, that was being constructed. What What is going to happen with that wall? Do you know? Is it just going to stand there or is it going to be used in some sort of capacity by Border Patrol? I mean, what happens when these projects are kind of abandoned? It stops where it stops, I think. Uh, oh, that wow. would be, uh, you know, we're in sort of new territory, but it would, you know, the, the wall that's been built will obviously remain. The wall that hasn't been built won't be built, and that's where things are left. Mm-hmm. I think it's really as simple as that. Mm-hmm. Whether that's good or not, I mean, I, I'll leave that for others to to debate on their own. I try not to, um, you know, I'm, I'm not here to sort of bring my own opinions, mm-hmm. but rather to sort of analyze the two sides. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I certainly leave others to make up their own minds about that. But I think that's that's sort of where we're at. So looking at uh, the coronavirus um, relief packages that have been released, um, is there any possibility that you think there's going to be a, this would be the third Third, fourth, fourth, I think, yeah. Is there any possibility of there being a fourth stimulus package released? I think it's all entirely dependent on where the state of the economy is in the next several months. Mm-hmm. I think if uh, unemployment, if the unemployment situation continues to improve, that is, you know, more people are finding work. Um, you know, there was a, I was watching the, the news last night and they were uh, talking about were uh, in, in in Raleigh that there are uh, fast food businesses that are desperate for workers right now mm-hmm. um, and that they're you know willing to hire sort of on the spot. So, uh, you know, if there is this pent up demand for labor and the unemployment situation improves over the next several months, then I don't think that we'll see more stimulus. Uh, but if we're, you know, if we see a situation happen in this country where, Let's just say hypothetically some new strain or some, uh, you know, a strain of the virus uh, 
starts to spread in this country and, uh, you know, we go back into, you know, more social distancing, uh, uh, shutdowns of some type, then who knows, then they might have to have that conversation again. But certainly, you know, the situation in India right now from a public health perspective is a reminder that um, at least in some parts of the world right now, um, you know, the, the coronavirus continues to be damaging. Um, and um, even in this country, there are, you know, the, the, the levels of the virus vary a bit from state to state. We've done, I think, relatively well um, compared to the, to the rest of the world um, on a number of indicators. But um, again, your question was down the road, would there be more stimulus? And, and my answer would be really depends. Um, and, and I have, don't, certainly don't have a crystal ball, so I don't know what will happen. <laughs> I'm, I'm obviously hopeful, hopeful, like any other person, that, uh, that we're going to you know, hope that hopefully the worst is, is long behind us, right. um, that the country will move forward, and that, um, that stimulus will, more stimulus won't be necessary. Mm. Moving beyond but the... those. Mm. Uh, moving beyond the, the coronavirus pandemic, another kind of policy that's been getting a lot of attention recently is um, uh, climate. Any any policies and legislations related to climate? And in Biden's first day of office, he signed an executive order reversing Trump's 2017 decision to withdraw from the, the Paris Climate Accords. Uh, but from from my understanding, there, there hasn't really been any other climate legislation passed. Do you think that we need to give it time? Or do you think that this is kind of one of those issues that might be swept to the wayside because of issues like the pandemic? Well, no, I think that the, the climate change issue has been something that's gotten some attention um you mentioned paris but the um you know the keystone pipeline was mm-hmm. another um did you mention that i, I mentioned the the climate accords but uh, i believe emily mentioned uh, the mm-hmm. keystone yeah keystone i thought if somebody had mentioned keystone at some point okay all right mm-hmm. i'm not um, i'm not crazy uh, <laughs> but yeah so both of those no both of those are good examples of sort of i think broader environmental policy well biden has been president again Back to what I said earlier, you know, presidents make campaign promises and then try to keep them. And uh, rejoining the Paris Agreement was one of those campaign promises. So uh, no shock that when Biden became president, he, uh, the United States rejoined the Paris Agreement. So no shock there. Um, the Keystone Pipeline, though, I think is interesting. Um, he, he canceled that, but that that the politics there are a little more um, are a little trickier for uh, particularly for. Um, a Democratic president. And the reason I say that is that you have a attention on the Keystone pipeline between the environment, the pro, uh, sort of the green wing of the Democratic Party um, that want stricter environmental regulations. Uh, but then you have you have the labor wing of the Democratic Party led by labor unions. And, um, you know, for, uh, you know, for those interests, the Keystone pipeline, uh, you're talking about jobs. So uh, that particular issue sort of pitted two wings within the party, um, to, at least to some degree. I, there were obviously some labor unions that um, were on the side of the green wing of the party. Um, but if you were in the certainly the construction unions, um, then, you know, the Biden's actions on the pipeline were, were not welcome news. Um but yeah, that was. Those are two certainly um, two areas that did get some attention, and and uh, you know have been a part of those first hundred days. Again, I just reiterate, you know, Biden certainly made uh, the the 
green wing of the Democratic Party, the environmental, pro-environmental wing of the Democratic Party, happy by rejoining the Paris Agreement and certainly for his actions um, in canceling the Keystone Pipeline project. So those, both of those actions were, you know, consistent with what the, um, again, what I'm calling the green wing of the Democratic Party would want. So he, he certainly, um, and he again had promised to do those things while campaigning for president and, and, you know, to a large extent, um, well, I guess to, I mean, it has, has in fact, carried forward on those promises. Mm-hmm. So my final question for you today is, and I know Victoria has uh, one final one as well, is in one of our previous podcasts, we were kind of analyzing the executive orders um, that President Biden had signed within his first day. And we're kind of wondering, you know, is the number of executive orders a president signs a gauge to how their presidency over the next four years is going to be? Is it going to be successful or not? Can we kind of analyze the first 100 days in the same sense? Are you able to gauge the success of a presidency based on, you know, what they've been able to accomplish in the first 100 days? Or is it just, you know, it's a really skewed data. You just never know. Well, first off, let's let's get this out of the way. Biden has passed so far, uh, at least the last count, I saw 42 executive orders in mm-hmm. those first 100 days. And that's that's more than any recent president, uh, more than more than Trump and more than, again, his, some of those some of his immediate predecessors. Uh, so the 42 executive orders is a lot. I your question is, what does it mean? Uh, does it you know, does it mean what does it mean about his presidency? I think the executive orders uh, whether they're good or bad, we don't know yet. Um, that you know, the policy consequences are something we won't feel the uh, the impact of at least um, for a little bit of time. I think really what I take more out of the 42 executive orders is the is a, it, it's a reflection of how small the margins are in Congress right now for Biden to get things done through Congress. So a lot of times the executive orders are done for their speed, but also as a way to bypass a messy fight in Congress. Right now, the Senate is literally 50-50. The Democrats get the 51st vote, of course, because of the vice president. Kamala Harris breaks those ties. But if even one Democrat breaks ranks, the Democrats can't get any, then Biden can't get through whatever it is that he wants to get through. And Joe Manchin is one of those Democrats. He's uh, by far the most conservative Democrat in the Senate and um, sometimes um, goes along with Republicans. Joe Manchin represents West Virginia, which has become one of the most Republican states over the last couple of decades or so. And um, Manchin um, means that uh, the Senate is not always an easy place for Biden to get through the things that he wants through. Uh, The House of Representatives, very narrow margins for Democrats as well. The Republicans gained seats in the 2000 election in the House and narrowed the Democrats' majority um, to just a few, you know, just a few votes now um, make, make the difference between passage and failure. And so in a closely contested Congress that's deeply polarized, if you want to get things done as president right now, the executive order um, sometimes is the much easier route than, than going through um, the, the more arduous process of um, 
of getting something through Congress. So I think it's a reflection of that, of the polarization and the difficulty of getting bipartisan support on anything. Mm-hmm. Kind of looking at, at public participation and, and going into your own personal experience, but have you noticed that people have dropped off in their interest in politics and talking about politics? Or have you seen kind of the same interest in, in what's going on on the federal level? Just from your experience. Are you talking about since Biden took office? Yes, since, yeah, since Biden took office. I think that the uh, there's been less there's been less controversy um, in part. To, let, let's go back to something I began talking about, which was the tweets. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seemed that um, that that Donald Trump's use of Twitter got people talking about politics um, either in a way that they were you know really happy with um, or in a way they were really angry with. Um, you know, tr- if you were a Trump supporter, I think even among Trump supporters, though, sometimes his uh, uh, the way he attacked his political opponents sometimes got criticized even by his supporters. But his supporters were always with Trump on the policy. Right. So, you know, Trump would get a conversation started and at minimum, you know, he'd have his supporters behind him, at least on the policy ideas that he's putting out there. Um Sometimes it may not have been the way he said it, but um, that that people liked. But they were at least they were talking about it. So Twitter's certainly got people, um, uh, and Trump's tweets certainly set the tone on an, on an almost daily level. Um, and we don't we don't see nearly as much of that um, with Joe Biden in office. So I think in in to to an extent, I think you find um, less people. Um, animated about politics. How about that? I'll use that word. I think that's a way of, of explaining it, right? Um, you know, <laughs> so it's, it's brought down the temperature a little bit, but I, I would say this much, though. I don't know, even though the temperature has been brought down, people may not be as animated. It also doesn't mean that Biden in any Biden has brought the country together either. I still think that there are, again, these deep, deep divisions. There is still this deep polarization um, so while the temperature may have dropped, there may not be um, – again, people may not be nearly as animated. Um, I think that's – we're still a long, long, long way away from saying that the country is any more unified um, than it was um, you know, uh, just a year ago or even four years ago. Mm-hmm. And these kind of conversations hopefully can can bring some sort of – something to the table to where we can at least see the other side and be a little Mm -hmm. bit more compassionate. I don't know if that's the right word, but understanding as well of, of, of what the other person and their experiences are bringing forth to this country and this American experiment. Mm -hmm. Yep. So I wanted to just throw one last number at you before we go um, to sort of reinforce the, uh, to reinforce some of the talk about the divisions in this country and the polarization. Um, 538.com um, gives uh, uh, gives you a, a list of all the you know takes into consideration all the polls that are out there on Joe Biden's approval and disapproval, and the number they had I checked this right before I came on today to make sure I gave you at least the most current numbers. The approval is at fifty three point five percent. Disapproval is at forty percent. So that's a net positive for Biden of thirteen point five percent. So. If you know, uh, you can look at those numbers and say that's good news for Joe Biden. He's 
you know, he's above water. Um, 53.5, right, is a bigger number than 40, so he's got more approval than disapproval. But to be at 53.5% approval, um, you know, it's just barely a majority. And typically, a new president has a period of time, it's called the honeymoon period. And during that honeymoon period, uh, approval of a new president is typically very, very high. Um, it can it can often be well above 60 percent. And if you know you look at where Biden sits today at 53.5 percent, uh, that's historically not a very high number. Now again, he's above water, and I think in a highly polarized environment, any president right now might say, "Hey, I'll take that." Uh, but to only be at 53.5 approval. Again, if you look historically for a president in his first 100 days, that's on the low side. And I think that that speaks certainly to um, to where we are as a country right now. Um, it was very, Donald Trump very rarely saw his approval numbers, um, you know, get much above the mid 40s throughout his presidency. Um, and it just seemed like, you know, there was sort of a ceiling for as high as he could go. And Biden's ceiling, um, you know, seems to be on the low side as well, at least compared to other recent presidents during this honeymoon period. And that ceiling is a product of the fact that the country is divided. Um, and I think that's, you know, the, the, the current approval, disapproval numbers really reinforce that point. And so I, I think really the only way to go forward is just to see what happens within the next couple of years and with these other elections that we yeah, have coming mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And so keep an eye on a, I mean, I think if you want to get a sense of where those numbers might move a little bit, um, you know, two things to keep in mind. Um, The stock market has been up and that's good for an incumbent president. Mm -hmm. Um, But the, you know, the economy is still in recovery. And if the economy experiences any hiccups, uh, that will certainly, um, you know, be a problem for Biden. You'll see his, his numbers change if that were to happen. One last point, um, I know I've said that now two or three times, but <laughs> one other point that I, I want to make that I think is another one last good point to make. And I know it's weird to be talking about the first 100 days, and I'm going to fast forward to the midterms, but you know, the 2022 midterms will be here before we know it. Mm-hmm. And I know that's crazy to say, but it, you know, time moves fast in politics. Mm-hmm. And the, the party of the president at the midterm election historically does very badly. Um, If you go back to uh, Donald Trump's presidency, the Republicans uh, experienced losses in the midterm election when Trump was president. If you go back to Barack Obama, the 2010 election was the midterm, at least during his first term in office, and the Democrats took a historic shellacking in that midterm election, uh, one of the largest losses um, in the history of the country for um, a party in Congress. If you go back to, if you go back to Bill Clinton, 1994 election was the contract with America year for Newt Gingrich and the Republicans. Um, Huge, huge year for the party that was out of power again. And I could keep going. George Bush in 1990, uh, George H.W. Bush in 1990, Democrats gained seats, Republicans lost. Um, Even Ronald Reagan, um, 1982, um, lost the Republicans lost seats to Democrats in the 82 midterms. So if history is any guide, you can look at this going all the way back to FDR. Uh, the, the president typically loses the president's party typically loses seats in the midterm. 
And so when we get to 2022, keep an eye on those approved, disapproved numbers. It's highly, highly likely based on history that Republicans will pick up seats in the Senate and the House. Obviously, if they pick up even one seat in the Senate, which they're likely to do, they'll control that chamber again, uh, at least for the next two years until the 2024 election. And then on the House side, the Democrats' majority is so thin right now um, that uh, – and will also be um, – uh, you know, be dealing with um, some of the changes that are taking place due to the census, um, which can affect, um, you know, we're going to be dealing with redistricting and other factors. So it's very possible that uh, Republicans will regain control, not only just the Senate, but the House as well. And the gains that Republicans make are going to likely be affected by uh, the approval numbers, numbers you see from Joe Biden. So right now, 53.5, as I mentioned earlier, is not historically very high. So if he drops even a little and is sitting below 50% approval, you know, then Republicans not only are likely to win back majorities in both chambers, but they could have they could have the kind of landslide election night that we've seen in the last several midterm elections. Mm-hmm. A lot of topics to explore, and we'll definitely be be covering those midterm elections with this pod, uh, podcast. So. I know, coming up sooner than we think. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, no, and I'll be happy to talk about that. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, you're always yeah invited as a guest. Thank you so much for joining us today. Sure, no, thanks. I always enjoy you know always enjoy a good political discussion. So thanks for having yes, me. Yes, so do we. Yeah. <laughs> All right, everyone, that's going to wrap up this episode of What the Politics. We release new episodes every Tuesday. You can find those at WNCT.com under the Features tab on the WNCT Podcast Network. You can also find us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcast. This was a great conversation, and like Dr. Francia said, you know, politics moves very fast, so a lot of these conversations will be discussing them sooner than later and before you know it. So thanks so much for joining us for this conversation conversation and we'll see you next week.